This is Future Tense Fiction, a podcast featuring stories about how technology could change tomorrow. I'm Maddie Stone. In the coming decades, hundreds of millions of people may be displaced by the rising seas, worsening droughts, and extreme weather associated with climate change. Of course, some people will still be living fairly stable lives, watching it all unfold from the comfort of their homes. 15-minute empathy hours were my idea. The show used to go a full 60, but it turns out people want to feel, but not too long, not too much. The show got shorter, but the name stuck. And why not? Afterward, you remembered having cared for the whole hour. And so many of us like having cared more than we like the act of caring. On today's episode, we're bringing you a reading of Empathy Hour by Matt Bell. Afterward, Matt joins me to talk about climate change, propaganda, and balancing utopia and dystopia in sci-fi. That's all coming up on Future Tense Fiction. Stay with us. This is Future Tense Fiction. I'm Maddie Stone. I'm a freelance journalist and the editor of The Science of Fiction, a newsletter about how science and pop culture intersect. Every month, Slate's Future Tense partnership with New America and Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination publishes a short story that explores how science and technology will shape our future. Now, we are bringing some of those stories to you in a podcast that includes a conversation with the author or an expert in a related field. Today's story is Empathy Hour by Matt Bell. Matt is the author of several books, most recently the climate fiction novel Appleseed, and teaches creative writing at Arizona State University. Matt's story is set in a not-too-distant future where the climate crisis has ravaged communities and triggered a massive refugee crisis. But you wouldn't know that if you're one of the lucky few who lives inside the Arcologies, self-contained cities where wealthy, unaware people enjoy cushy lives. Our protagonist, Francis, lives in one of the cities and works on Empathy Hour, a propaganda show ostensibly intended to inspire empathy for the displaced masses. Then, someone from his past opens his eyes to the harsh reality of life outside the Arcology walls. After the story, Matt and I talk about problematic climate change narratives and complicity in the fossil fuel economy. And now, here's Empathy Hour, read by Josh Bloomberg. This week, like every week, it's the theme song that calls you to attention. The music simultaneously jaunty, patriotic, inspirational, commanding. As the fade-in begins, the tune gives way to the whoop-whoop-whoop of unseen rotors, the familiar sound preceding your first glimpse of a helicopter's wash, rippling the dark water surrounding a half-drowned house, where this week's family balances awkwardly atop their roof's wind-peeled slope, desperate for rescue. A mother, a father, two preteen daughters, and an especially attractive Australian cattle dog. The family jumps and flails their arms and cries out. Their voices vanish below the thumping rotors. They're yelling, help! They're yelling, save us! But you're grateful not to have to hear it. You're feeling enough already when the steel frame of the rescue basket appears, spinning downward toward the evacuees. Safe as you are, 
It's hard to imagine climbing aboard such a conveyance. Hard to imagine trusting its braided cable to lift you safely. It's hard, but you try. It's the right thing to do. Right now, during Empathy Hour. The mother catches the basket and pins it against the roof's slope. The father helps the two daughters on board. Once the girls are settled, their father passes them their distractingly handsome dog, then steps in before assisting the mother. The helicopter's winch reverses direction. The basket ascends over whatever disaster this is, over wherever this is happening. Oh, look! The sisters are insisting the distractingly handsome dog enter the helicopter first. And wow, they really should, because it's a great-looking dog. Not that the kids aren't good-looking, too. But nothing gets you feeling for other humans like a great-looking dog. The theme music returns, still triumphant, but now respectfully sad. The screen fades to black exactly 15 minutes after the episode started. Fifteen-minute empathy hours were my idea. The show used to go a full 60, but it turns out people want to feel, but not too long, not too much. The show got shorter, but the name stuck. And why not? Afterward, you remembered having cared for the whole hour. And so many of us like having cared more than we like the act of caring. We're close now, team, says Mank pacing before the production room's wall of telescreens. Just a few last tweaks to go. His features are smooth, placid, unworried beneath a perfect quaff of brown hair. For starters, Prim, can we make the location even less specific? Uh, you know the plan, mix and match for effect, never show any reasons whatsoever. This is another of Mank's most recent pet theories. Depict only effects, never causes. There's no empathy in logic, he claims, so we deepfake the after-effects of hurricanes, but not hurricanes. The damage from forest fires, but never what sparked them. Mank and I have both worked here at Prop Arts for a long time now, but only he's still trying to innovate. I was 17 years old when the show first aired. The star of its first episode, back when Empathy Hour still used live footage, now, 20 years later, I'm its longest tenured employee, and more than a little bored. I roll my eyes at Prim, who's sitting beside me dressed entirely in black and white, her monochrome suit projecting sheer competency, a contrast to my schlubby hoodie and jeans. When she's ready, she restarts the episode. I lean in to watch my people, Prim her landscapes and cityscapes, her water and wreckage, a flooded street was never so ominous before Prim joined the team. The way her wind bends a palm tree or tosses a traffic sign across a parking lot? Perfection. Her twilight sheens of oil, swirling and reflecting the anxious faces of a family wading through contaminated water? True terror. Not to mention her dust bowl prairies, her collapsing ice shelves, her clumping marine mucilage. It's good, Francis. Mank says, ceasing his pacing to point at the younger sister. 
But at the end, can you make this kid look at her rescuers instead of the home she's lost forever? I toggle the toggles, slide the sliders, drag the draggable elements, re-render the unerring photorealism. Now the child looks at the pilots, at the camera, at us, her face beautifully besmudged, her gaze a saccharine combo of gratitude and awe. We did this, you'll think. These people were suffering, and we saved them. Perfect, Manx says, and not a moment too soon. It's late Sunday afternoon, minutes from showtime. He retrieves his authenticator from a case tucked inside his shirt, then inserts it into the console. After pressing an unnecessarily large and unnecessarily red button, he charges out of the prop arts office, polishing his self-importance with impressive speed. Prim and I wait until he's gone to crack up. What a wanker, Prim says. Who needs him? You do the people, I do the places, he does the... What does he do, Francis? The product placement. It's an old joke, not worth a new laugh. I stand and stretch. Want to head down to the concourse and watch the show? When Empathy Hour airs, the city stops, even on the public concourse. Unlike the packed Warrens dominating most of Arc 2's 60 floors, the concourse is a wide circular avenue of moving walkways and clean white tile, shops and cafes beneath a deep fake summer's day. There's little need to visit this mall. Every apartment has a materials printer supplying basic essentials, a recycler to whisk away soiled or broken items. But the founders knew people needed something to strive for, which for most people meant something to buy, which they most often wanted to buy where someone else could see them. Tonight, Prim and I choose a sidewalk table outside a coffee shop order two slices of chocolate cake made from equal parts mushrooms and synthetic sweeteners. Our food arrives just as the screens mounted throughout the concourse activate. Sitting beside me, Prim readies her tablet, loading a real-time graph of where every city eyeball pointed at a screen is looking. As I crane my neck to watch the shoppers and eaters pausing their shopping and eating as the pre-episode ads run, Prim scoffs. I can tell you how much a person's skin temperature and pulse and focus changes as the episode plays. What do you think you're seeing that I'm not? I want to see their faces, Prim. I want to watch the story land. Our same old argument, cut off by the theme music blasting through the concourse. Even if we wanted to keep talking, we wouldn't be able to. Empathy Hour is that loud. The episode plays. Faces all around me go rapt, mindful, focused on feeling. Some people's eyes glisten, even produce a tear here or there. It's so satisfying to know I did this. I'm basking, contented with the week's work, until I see him sitting in the coffee shop across the avenue. A shop no better or worse than the one I'm in, because it serves the same coffee. Him. A grown man wearing a boy's face. A face I haven't seen in 20 years. A boy's face now fleshed out and bearded and dominated by a nose broken more than once. 
a face half obscured by thick black glasses, but utterly recognizable. If I didn't know better, I'd think the man the face belonged to was named Eli. Eli, who was my best friend, until the moment I was rescued and he was not. Eli sticks out precisely because he doesn't acknowledge Empathy Hour. It's a remarkable breach of norms. While everyone else watches the nearest screen, hands over hearts or across mouths, making soft, performative sounds of distress and worry and, finally, relief, only Eli drinks his drink, grimacing, interested only in his own disgust. Before Empathy Hour's 15 minutes are up, he's out of his seat, unnecessarily leaping over the rail of a moving walkway, cutting a dramatic figure as he's whisked from view. Did you see that? I ask Prim, pointing where maybe Eli went. Did you see that guy? See what guy? Prim asks, without glancing up from her tablet, where even I can see our numbers have slipped. Not our best episode. Francis, you used too good a dog again. Nobody watched the people. I bitterly eat my fungus cake. The database we rely on to make Empathy Hour is vast, but not endless. We don't have enough dogs and cats, making it hard to optimize my pet choices. It's easier for Prim, who has plenty of landscapes to work from. There are cities everywhere, and wilds, too. The only thing we can never do anymore is show the real footage of anyone's real family. The sobbing, the screaming, the dirt caked in the creases of clothes. It's too gruesome. Now we build our episodes by recombining the finite stock of what was filmed before our city's gates closed, designing composite people to rescue from composite disasters. The technology is impressive, but it requires reality as an input. With no new footage coming, we can't afford to delete anything, so the faces of my parents remain in the database. So does my face. So does our house, drowned long ago. So does my dog who cost me so much. Still, all I have to do to avoid seeing us while I work is to never search our exact demographics, never combine certain ages, certain skin tones, certain biomes, never choose a St. Bernard, which can weigh up to 180 pounds all by itself. After all, no one should ever put a dog that big into a rescue basket, not when there are people left to save. Our city is 16 interlinked arcologies, a self-contained, self-sufficient society of recycled water, recycled air, composted everything. All travel between arcs is by sleek underground trams, their window screens all displaying the same bucolic countryside, the same cow beside the same grain silo. Tonight, Prim and I share the ride home, her arc one stop before mine. Sitting beside me, she says, Did you hear? Landscape wants to add in some autonomous farm drones to show people how the land is being made productive again. Wait, is the land being made productive again? Her look is withering. I'm an idiot she has to put up with, not a colleague she admires. Prim's ambitious and knows my long tenure is blocking her next promotion, but she exits the train with a friendly enough wave. The disdain she feels for me is strictly professional. 
People get on, people get off. No one rides the loop a second longer than they have to. No one ever sees the cow twice, except me, the city's lone joy rider. No one except me, and tonight, the bearded man from the Arc II concourse, who enters the now empty car to sit opposite me. He removes his glasses, wipes the bridge on his shirt hem, puts them back on. Hey, Francis, he says. Long time no see. I can't believe it's him. Eli's hair has gone gray, his cheeks craggy and sun-damaged. I imagine the life story captured in his swollen knuckles, each enlarged joint a breeding ground for arthritis. My mom and dad had hands like that. I can't picture their faces anymore, but I know those hands. How did you get here? I see our security only in occasional advids, but I know it's there. The city has walls and gates, and nothing with walls and gates can go without armed guards. After all, the founders weren't pacifistic environmentalists, inventing a post-scarcity society of egalitarianism and thrift, or if they once were, they soon discovered they hated how such a society made everyone equally rich. So they let in some rescues to be their tired, their poor, their grateful, huddled, wretched refuse. That was the first incarnation of Empathy Hour. Live videos of actual rescues of actual people who actually got to live in the city. Sure, in the sub-basement. Sure, as waiters and trash collectors, sure. But safe as anyone who'd paid their way in. Safe from everyone, but the people who rescued them. But Eli wasn't one of those rescues, like I was. If he was, I would have seen him by now. The more interesting question, Eli says, isn't how I got here, but why I came. Why don't you invite me upstairs and I'll tell you all about it. It's a bad idea. What I should do is run away, try to forget Eli was ever here. The deep fake cow zips by. I'm almost home. I stand and reach out a hand, pull Eli to his feet. His hand is as calloused as I imagined. A memory of sandpaper, a memory of sand. He smiles, exposes a broken canine, and despite the broken tooth, it's the same smile I remember. We've changed, but not that much. Even back then, Eli could always get me to do whatever he wanted. My apartment is located on the 14th floor of Arc 12. Most of my walls are shared by another apartment, but the soundproofing is so exquisite you'd never know. Every wall is a floor-to-ceiling screen, displaying not only entertainments, but a designer world. Landscape isn't my department, but I did some consulting before Prim joined us. How green should the grass be? How rolling the hills? How fast the rivers? The answers change, but always in the same direction. The green gets greener, the hills more rolling, the water coursing ever more rapidly. I'm still at the window when Eli emerges from the bathroom, dressed in clothes I printed while he showered. He runs a hand through his damp hair before retrieving his glasses from beside the materials printer. 
You've done well for yourself, Francis, he says, flopping onto my sofa. You know you're famous, right? Where I'm from, everyone remembers watching Empathy Hour. So realistic, so moving. There's a mocking tone in his voice, but it's gentle enough. Not that we see it much anymore. Not with all the new shows made specifically for the camps. The camps. I picture FEMA's white trailers and white tents before FEMA was shuttered. Fences hastily erected by weekend soldiers in crisp camouflage. Distributions of bottled water and government-issued food in plain packaging. I remember my dad, on the last day I saw him, saying, Hurricane Katrina probably wasn't the first time I saw the camps, but it was the first time I remember. And now, we're headed there too. He said this, and then he pushed me up onto the roof. Me and Eli and my St. Bernard, all there together, standing beside my parents atop our drowning house. Eli, who was staying with us because his parents had gone missing a week earlier, last seen paddling away in a canoe to try to get us all help. Eli, orphaned by the world. Me, orphaned by my own choices. The two of us here, reunited at last. I can't believe the camps still exist. I say, retrieving two glasses from the kitchen, plus a bottle of murky brown mung bean bourbon. Not the camps, he corrects, accepting a glass. But the camps. This time I hear the capital letter. A proper place name, like the city, like the wilds. No more trailers or tents. And not outside, because not much is outside anymore. He sloshes his drink, threatens a spill above my immaculate couch. I down my mung bourbon and pour another. The stuff tastes like wet dirt, but it works. My face flushes with equal parts shame and alcohol. Where were the camps built? How far away were you? You really don't know? There's a smile threatening on his face. How Eli's always looked when he has a secret. The camps are below the cities. I was brought here to yours, along with your parents, not long after you left us behind. I start to protest, but there's no malice in his voice when he cuts me off. Water under the bridge, and over the bridge, and washing the bridge away. How could you have known they wouldn't come back for me or your parents? That's right, I say. I'd assumed my parents and Eli would follow me and my dog aboard, but a St. Bernard is such a big creature. So much dumb fur and friendliness and slobber that there wasn't room for anyone else. The pilots hadn't known this would be the last trip either. Only after we arrived in the city was it obvious the rescues had ended. Why are you here, Eli? What do you want? Ah, Eli says. He walks into the bathroom, returns carrying trousers so worn they should have gone into a recycler long ago. I wanted to show you something. He fishes in a pocket and pulls out an ancient solid-state drive. Where can I plug this in? 
No way he's attaching it to my tablet or my wall display. But there's a nest of obsolete disconnected tech at Prop Arts, shoved in a closet after we digitized every piece of loose old world footage we could find. Something there should work. And if it doesn't, then I don't have to know whatever Eli has come to tell me. We're going to take a short break here. When we come back, more of Empathy Hour. Stay with us on Future Tense Fiction. You're listening to Future Tense Fiction. I'm Maddie Stone. Now back to Matt Bell's story, Empathy Hour. We take another train ride, looping past the deep fake cow and back to the Arc 2 elevator to prop arts. I'm nervous about being caught with Eli, but it's the middle of the night. There shouldn't be anyone here, and isn't. As I unlock the door, Eli tells me about the camps. Lately, I've been assigned to a mycoprotein farm, he says, following me through the darkened cubicle maze. All day shoveling and raking, knee-deep in moist synth dirt, breathing in spores of genetically modified mushrooms. But it's not the worst job I've had. Eli describes the cavernous underground warehouses, where men and women and children in filter masks dismantle the city's discarded gadgets, uncoiling copper wire from generators, teasing free spent lithium-ion batteries to recover rare earth metals. Everyone hopes this isn't the time a swollen battery spontaneously explodes, but sometimes it is. I don't know where those gadgets come from, I say, as we enter the storage room, but ours are recycled in-house. I've seen a video touring the facility. Francis, you know you're not the only division of prop arts. Do you think none of what's made here is aimed at you? I don't respond. I know, and I don't know, because I don't want to know what I know. I retrieve a distressed tablet from a box of junk. We'll have to plug this in, but it should work. I say it, even as I hope it won't. Don't be afraid, Francis. What I have to show you isn't more propaganda. It's the truth. But that's exactly what you'd say if it was propaganda. I plug in the tablet, wait for it to light up before I attach Eli's drive. He hovers while I watch the first video. It's not even 15 minutes of footage, not even a whole empathy hour, but it's more than enough. What did I think Eli was going to show me? People drowning in floods, burning in fires, starving in between? Disease and destruction and desolation? Unprotected workers doing dangerous labor I wouldn't dream of doing? Some of it is that. Some of it's worse. This is the suffering my good life depends upon. But what I feel seeing it laid bare isn't empathy, at least not the calibrated varietal of it we cultivate during empathy hour. Shut it off, I say weakly, guiltily. I don't ever want to see that again. You don't have to rewatch it, Eli says. You just have to broadcast it. There's no way to commandeer the city's screens without Mank's permission, I explain. He's got the keys, literally. It's his authenticator that starts our broadcast. I can't help you, I say. 
I want to, but I can't. We both know it's a lie. I can't, and I don't want to. Eli takes back the tablet and cues the next video. Before you decide, he says, you should see the videos Prop Arts makes for the camps. Those are the real mind fuck. Before Eli arrived, it hadn't occurred to me there'd be deepfakes in the camps, too. Who could people rounded up and forced to farm fungi underground possibly feel empathy for? Not empathy for, Eli corrects. Aspiration toward. They show us videos of city life and tell us one day we can earn our place there. But they don't show us your life. They show us dingy hallways and shared living quarters. People in slightly better clothes than ours, with slightly better hair and teeth. Access to clean food and water, sure, but not shopping. Not restaurants. Never luxury and excess. The gap between life in the camps and life in the cities is made to look slight. The rich are richer, but they're not that rich. The gesture Eli makes indicates not the dim storeroom, but the city's linked arcologies, the gleaming white rooms, the screens showing a more beautiful world, the printers making clean clothes and on-demand snacks. If the camps knew about all this, he says, they would riot. How did you figure it out? I ask. How did you know the videos were fake? His secret smile appears again. Eli was my best friend, but I never loved his smile. Not then and not now. It was you, dummy. I saw you, star of the show. A waif eating paste-white gruel, going to school, studying hard, safe and happy. Not you now, but you as you were. No. It can't be. Prim wouldn't. But Mank would. That bastard. For the past five years, Eli continues, you've been the most popular celebrity in the camps. Every episode of your show is about how you were rescued and given a life in the city. You never age, never change. It's you as you were on the day you left, traveling around a fake city with your fake St. Bernard, having adventures and learning lessons about the necessity of following the rules and knowing your proper place. Oh God, the dog too? Fuck yes, the dog too. If I hadn't already been sure it was you, your stupid mutt would have sealed the deal. The video begins playing on the tablet in Eli's hands. Little Baby Francis, the title card says, although the character who appears isn't a baby. I was 17 when I was rescued, and so is Deepfake me, trotting along beside my Deepfake dog. Your parents loved this, Eli says, all his anxious humor vanished. Fifteen years they waited for word that you were okay. This show was all they got. 
Why didn't you search for them? For me? How can I say I never thought about you much at all? How can I admit that I was a stupid teenager when I came to the city? That I was so glad to have arrived in a world of screens showing me things I wanted to see, instead of a world always becoming less? I'm sorry, Eli. I really am. And this, at least, is true enough. I am sorry for what happened to Eli, to his parents, to mine, but not sorry enough to wish it had happened to me instead. Eli claps me on the shoulder. Let's figure out how we're going to get your boss's authenticator. Franchises, Francis, says Mank, opening our dinner conversation without preamble or small talk. We've already spent this entire Monday storyboarding next week's Empathy Hour, but there's no room for the personal in our relationship. Mank may not even have a personal side. When I suggested we have dinner together, his pink cheeks shook with genuine shock. By the time we reach the table, he's back to his old self. Syndication rights, foreign distribution, remakes and remasters. When the cities agree to start trading again, we need to be ready. After all, empathy only extends so far across the language barrier. What we need is localized content, produced for particular market demographics worldwide. Hell, why not empathy our kids, with more pets per rooftop and no adults? He gestures at the families, sharing this new Tex-Mex Japanese fusion restaurant we're sitting in. For kids, forget 15-minute empathy hours, start thinking seven. We'll have them chock full of childhood daring and caring and back to more entrepreneurial content in no time. Normally, I'm the office naysayer. But tonight, my job is to keep him talking, and eating, and especially drinking, something he's doing with a gusto I struggle to match, given the taste. It isn't that I ever thought my glass held actual bourbon, and it's not like my steak fajita tempura burger resembles any food I had before the city. But mostly, we don't think about how every bite and sip we take is just highly processed legumes and fungi, cleverly disguised. Since Eli arrived, I can't think about anything else. Empathy Kids sounds like a great idea, I say. The kind of innovation Prop Arts prizes. Exactly right. And I'm glad to hear you say it. Mank gestures with a chopstick in one hand and a fork in the other. I've always thought you saw us as competitors, but I want us to be friends. Or friends who compete. <laughs> Friendly rivals, with an emphasis on the first part outside the office, and on the second part in. A new era in our relationship, I say, ordering another round of Hmong bourbons. I will get better at caring for other people, I tell myself just as soon as I get done getting Mank unconscious on fermented mung beans, so I can steal his authenticator in order to help my childhood best friend expose the lie I've spent my adult life helping to perpetuate. When his head finally hits the table, a dozen drinks and a dozen increasingly unhinged franchise ideas later, I lean in close, whisper into Mank's ear, This is what you get for using me in your videos. I slur, checking the emptying restaurant, before reaching under the open collar of his shirt 
fishing through the bramble of his chest hair for the authenticator. Only the staff are left, the other refugees chosen to be servants and cooks and toilet scrubbers instead of TV stars. No one here cares what Mank and I do, only that we do it and go. I make my escape without eye contact. If I hadn't had the good luck to be last, I almost say, I would have been one of you. Another train trip past the deepfake cow, and I'm back at Arc 2, where Eli waits in the lobby, standing conspicuously inconspicuous beside the elevators. You've got it, he says, as soon as he sees my face. You actually did it. How can you be so sure? Because you look guilty as shit. He laughs. Let's do this before you lose your nerve. On the ride up, I study my frightened face in the reflective silver of the elevator's door. Surely I'm about to be arrested. Whatever happens when everyone sees Eli's truths? Do I think people will thank me? That I'll go free and blameless? A messenger unshot? You're doing the right thing, Eli says, as the elevator doors open on the prop arts office. Don't worry. Shh, I say, dragging Eli behind the walls of the nearest workstation. Someone's here. The lights are on in our production room, but they shouldn't be. No one works this late. Or at least I never have. But someone is, and if it's not me, and it's not Mank, Prim. Prim's here, alone, working late. And she's making the next episode of Little Baby Francis. Even from outside the production room, I can see myself on the screens inside. There I am at 17. 17 forever, with my St. Bernard at my side, feeling his fur, hearing the sound of his bark. Living like I might have lived if the disasters had never come, if the cities hadn't saved us, some of us, from the wilds to come. If the seas hadn't risen, if the fires hadn't spread, if the pandemics hadn't mutated into endless new variants. The deep fake Francis on the screen is and isn't me. I never did anything I see myself doing, but I recognize my expression, the sadness and the fear that's visible even when deep fake me is smiling. Prim could invent a whole other life for me, this co-worker she obviously despises, but she couldn't undo my sadness or my fear. Let's get out of here, I say. But Eli is no longer beside me. He's already opening the door to the production office, stepping inside. You must be Prim, <gasps> I hear him say. Through the window, I see him reach into the pocket of his jacket, the jacket I printed for him just yesterday, and pull out a pistol, something no printer in the city would ever make. He must have brought it with him from the camps, where it would have been just as illegal. I'm a big fan of your work, Eli snarls. Little baby Francis is a big hit where I'm from. As I rush to follow him, I think, whom do I save? Prim or Eli? It's just designing a scene, I tell myself. It's just another day at the office. And then the gun goes off and I know it's anything but.
Prim lives, of course. So does Eli. Me too. The gunshot is only for dramatic effect. No one dies, no one gets hurt. Not yet. By the time I'm inside the production office, a bullet hole smokes in the center of a shattered display, driving little deep-faked baby Francis from the large central screen into the smaller screens that surround it. With a shaking hand, Prim gives Eli her authenticator, which sends video not to the city, like Manx does, but to the camps. I can't believe you're a part of this, Francis, she says, her proper face properly disappointed. Whatever this is, I can't believe you've been making videos of me this whole time. I can't believe they're good. I thought you didn't even like people. I don't, Prim says. But you're barely a person, are you? There's no time for this, Eli says, nodding toward the wall clock, before using the pistol to move me beside Prim. With his gun trained on the two of us, Eli works the console with his free hand. Alone in my apartment, he must have logged into my remote terminal to upload his footage to PropArt's servers. When security checks the logs, it'll look like I made the videos. Once Eli inserts one authenticator or the other, a countdown will begin. Soon after, every screen in either the city or the camps will interrupt its current content to display Eli's footage. He inserts Mank's key first, and I know what he's sending to the city, the same footage he showed me of what the world outside looks like now. It's futile, I think. Whatever he hopes is going to happen isn't. In the city, it's the middle of the night. Mostly, this'll be a bad dream for the city's sleepwalkers and insomniacs. Eli's broadcast is disastrous, but I've seen it all before. I saw it in movies and video games when I was a kid. I watched it on the news as a teenager, and then it arrived at my door. Even Prim, who loves a landscape more than a person, looks bored. Soon enough, Prim must know, the elevator door to prop arts will open and security will spill in. Held at gunpoint as she is, she won't be the one blamed for what's happened. When the videos of the wilds in the camps end, Eli tosses Manx's key aside. He inserts Prim's authenticator next, presses the unnecessarily large red button again. What are you doing? I ask. Don't the people in the camps already know how bad it is outside? What could showing them this possibly change? But what plays next isn't the same footage. It's me, but not as little baby Francis. It's me all grown up. Big baby Francis, not deep faked, but as I truly am, as Eli saw me these past two days. Where did you get this footage? I ask, appalled. You're an idiot, Francis, Prim says. Can't you see the camera in his glasses? Eli waits while I study the thick black frame perched atop his oft-broken nose. Right above the bridge is the tiniest pinprick of a camera lens, only visible when looking him straight in the eyes, something I must have never had the courage to do. I've been watching you, he said, feeling not empathy, but envy, angry envy at this life you have that everyone in the camps should have had. 
I'm going to show them what's really happening, not the fake, barely better city of little baby Francis, but the truth. I close my eyes, knowing I don't need to watch the screens around the smoking bullet hole to imagine what the people in the camps are seeing. I put myself in someone else's shoes, watching a screen in some bunkhouse slash mushroom farm slash recycling center. I put myself in my dead parents' shoes. I know they're gone, but here they are in my mind, deep fakes of the heart, watching their long-lost son. Here's sad me, riding the underground tram alone. Here's lonely me, drinking Hmong bourbon in my apartment with its beautiful window screens and their fake but convincing views. Here's wasteful me, printing new clothes even though the ones I'm wearing are merely dirty. Here's successful middle management me, smugly eating chocolate fungus cake. I'm just a person, I want to argue, not at fault for living the only life I know how. I'm just a person doing the best job he can in the world he was given. Prim, maybe it's not you who's bad with people, I say, and the look on Prim's face is so withering I immediately turn away. Eli, I say instead, appealing to the only person who might still trust me. Give me the gun. No, Francis, he says, his face contorted with what a better person than me would recognize not as anger, but sorrow. You can't stop this. You can't save your precious city from the people in the camps. Not now. They'll strike. They'll riot. I know they will. I know too, I say. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. It doesn't matter. I can't save the city, and I can't help the camps. I can only help Eli. Give me the gun and go. What are you doing, Francis? Asks Prim, her voice disbelieving, as Eli hesitantly hands over the pistol, as I pointed in Prim's direction. Have you lost your mind? Once, I tell her, this guy was my best friend. I point Eli to Mank's office, where I know a fire escape waits behind an emergency hatch. There won't be any fakery inside, only spiraling steel steps descending forty floors to ground level. If he hurries, he might vanish the way he came, back through whatever secret passage he took to get here in the first place. I'll look you up again in another twenty years, Francis, Eli says. Maybe I'll find you somewhere a little more real. Maybe even somewhere better. But for all of us this time. And then he's gone. Not rescued, but set free. Any moment now, the elevator will open to let in a security squad dressed in riot armor and armed with supposedly non-lethal weaponry. I'll hold on to the gun until they arrive do my best to make the scene convincing. Probably it won't fool them for long. Just enough to save Eli. The only person in the world I know exactly how to help. Right here, right now. That was Empathy Hour, written by Matt Bell and read by Josh Bloomberg. Coming up, Matt tells us about the role of climate fiction in a world where media narratives help maintain the status quo. That's just ahead on Future Tense Fiction. 
Stay with us. You're listening to Future Tense Fiction, and you just heard Empathy Hour. It's not the first piece of climate fiction Matt Bell has written. His 2021 novel Appleseed shows the ravages of climate change both in the near and distant future. I asked him what first opened his eyes to the climate crisis and how it will impact humanity's future. I mean, I think I've always thought of myself as an environmentalist. You know, I grew up in, in the Midwest as a hiker and a backpacker, grew up in rural Michigan. The natural world's always been, you know, a focus, I think, of my life. Sort of the last 10 years of news sort of accelerated or escalated. I think that became sort of more pressing for me. My second novel, Scrapper, takes place in contemporary Detroit. It's partly about the illegal metal scavenging industry. And one of the things that I sort of researched as working on that book was sort of the global recycling chain. I really sort of knew where everything went. There was something about that that also interfaced with sort of climate change and the sort of extractive sort of resources we're using and, and these kind of things. I think the thinking was sort of beginning then. My actual kind of direct climate writing was maybe the last five or six years. Before we get into the story, as a climate fiction author, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the role that you see climate fiction playing in our current moment. One narrative is that it can be a way of educating the public or getting people to internalize the severity of the crisis. I've seen other people argue that it's a way of gaming out better futures in which we deal with climate change and dystopian futures we'd like to avoid. So where do you fall on this spectrum? I certainly agree that it can do all of those things. I don't think there's obviously one thing it should do or can do. You know, there's a lot of different approaches. Something I've been thinking about a lot of my own work is uh, I kind of feel like I have a dystopian plot mind and like a utopian heart. You know, like I'd like to be the kind of person who's thinking sort of more toward imagined sort of better futures. I am trying to do that, I think, in the work I'm doing now. But certainly sometimes starting from a cautionary place or place of sort of anxiety or worry. I've sometimes talked about, uh, you know, kind of the old cliche of creative writing, like you should write what you know. And I think one of the things you might do instead is to write what you're afraid to know to sort of move toward the things that you're kind of afraid to face in the world or in yourself. And I think there is part of that to me in, in climate writing that uh, when I started writing Appleseed, I obviously was uh, concerned and worried and had my own sort of climate anxieties. And in some ways, facing them was one of the, was good for me, even apart from the fiction, right? That it was sort of facing into the thing instead of trying to ignore it or trying to pretend it's not there. It was maybe dealing with my own climate denial by, by writing it in some ways, which I think was was really useful. The part of me that came out more hopeful or calmer in different ways, even though obviously I wouldn't say I'm calm about it, uh, is because I could see that there are solutions, there are things we could be doing. You know, some of it is about will and political power, not like no one understanding what we might do. So I think, you know, showing some of that in fiction is, it can be a way of like helping us imagine the steps we could take just to make us feel like there are actions that are possible, that the kind of agency a protagonist has is useful. I think the other thing I'm really interested in, and maybe this is more what Empathy Hour is about, is complicity. I think I'm interested in sort of our complicity in the systems we live in. There's a, a kind of discussion about like, you're born into these sort of ongoing narratives, you're born into these ongoing stories. And it's not your fault that you were born into like a fossil fuel economy, right? Like that's just where we started. But it is probably your fault if you never do anything about it or never try to escape from it or never try to even admit that it's part of your life. We're probably not going to cleanly exit it as individuals, but we can deal with it in some ways. Yeah, I'm so glad you you framed it that way, because I do think there's this really 
interesting discourse, this this long-standing discourse in the climate space more broadly, not just the climate fiction space, about individual responsibility versus systemic change. So let's talk about that a little bit more. With in this story, you've created this world of extreme inequality brought on by climate change, among other social and political factors. There's this elite group of city dwellers living in luxury in these self-contained arcologies, and then there are what seem like a much larger number of people living in crowded underground settlements doing the cleanup and production work that keeps the cities running. Can you talk a little bit just about your world building process here? What inspired some of the key elements in this world? Were there sort of specific trends in society today that were on your mind as you were developing this world? Yeah, thank you. Probably the starting position is the sort of anger. I feel that, you know, the most privileged, the sort of richest elite people will not suffer climate change the way everyone else will. It's already sort of obvious, like it's going to affect everyone, but it will not affect everyone equally. And, you know, already the life we live in, you know, in the West and the US will be less affected than in some other places in the world and the global South and other places. Uh, but certainly I expect that like the Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos of the world will live a different life in the future than you or I might, right? And I feel sort of generally furious about that, you know, sort of the people who uh, bear the largest responsibility for the world being the way it is will suffer the least, you know. And so I think it this is a version of that kind of place. And maybe a more middle class, like climate privilege. Francis's life in the story is not like an ideal life, right? It's sort of, but it is a um, a way of avoiding the worst of climate change. Arcology, you know, is a, coined by Paolo Soleri, who's an architect here, or was an architect who lived here in Arizona. That idea of like archaeology and ecology together. Uh, Soleri meant it as very positive way that we had to learn to make architecture that was ecological fiction it almost always is uh like refuge from the world that is sustainable for some people not for others right it, it's sort of i see it mostly in these sort of dystopian kind of contexts um but i like working from that word and trying to build an imagined future that would be sustainable while still only sustainable for some and of course dependent on oppression or other people's suffering that's the part of individual choice i find complicated right like the choices you make do have effects and other people, even if it feels like you're just buying something from a store, right? Or just consuming dinner, trying to make a, a world that looks sustainable to the people living in it, as long as they don't have to hear about what their sustainability costs other people. And it sounds like uh, one thing you're really talking about there is greenwashing in a way, sort of the greenwashing that corporations feed us in terms of what is, you know, the impact of what we do and what we consume and how we should feel good about it for X, Y, Z reasons and and the own kind of internal greenwashing we do where we block out the uh, negative impacts and, and put them in a little box over there. And so, yeah, there's these sort of layers of greenwashing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And you hear sometimes the narratives people tell themselves about things are certainly narratives I tell myself. I think one of the reasons to read and write fiction is to wake yourself up sometimes to some of those things that you take as assumptions. Even things like heavy metal mining for like electronics or something, right? And you see the conditions, you know, those chemicals are sort of mined in. And you, you would talk to people about it and you would hear things like, oh, but those people are so lucky to have like jobs in that place they live. And I'm like, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure that's exactly right. Or because you've made the conditions conditions where they have to work that way as part of it. That's those sort of, it's okay that I'm doing this because it's actually helping the people who are who are suffering, not the people in the underground settlements and empathy hour are being saved from the climate disaster, right? They have to live in caves, but they're saved. Like sort of obviously not the life you would pick for yourself. 
Yeah, so let's just talk a little bit more about the functions of um, these narratives that we tell ourselves in in the context of this world. So central to the way that these cities function and that the status quo maintained is through this propaganda show. I don't think there's any other way to put it, Empathy Hour. And so these episodes where these ostensible victims of climate disasters are rescued from some horrors in the wild by benevolent city dispatched rescue teams. And um, it's a program that is clearly designed to make city dwellers feel like heroes and saviors rather than elites who benefit from the collective suffering of, of the masses. And can you just talk a little bit about how propaganda is used to maintain the status quo in Empathy Hour and the parallels you see between that and how media narratives help maintain the status quo in our world today. You know, I think there's been a discussion in recent years in creative writing about the, this idea of like the empathy producing effect of literature, that we read stories about other people's lives for people who are different from us and, and we feel uh, increases our capacity for empathy to read literature, which I think is probably true. But the side effect of that is, is the empathy is not meaningful if it doesn't mean that you like want to make change to read a book about people who are living in conditions that are not yours and being like, oh, that's terrible. And I feel for those people. And then to do nothing to change that is is sort of a limited effect. Yeah, it's something it's doing something for you, but it's not doing anything in the world. Or it's not doing anything for the way you move through the world. And I think Empathy Hour in the city works in a, a similar way. I was thinking about, of course, writing about climate change and watching things about climate change. You do see a lot of like disaster footage. And you do see people rescued from even, you know, thinking back to like Hurricane Katrina, you know, it's maybe like that central image in the story for me with all the sort of airlift kind of things that are they're producing in the story. Um, but you don't see like the next step. You don't see where those people go. You don't see how they get their lives back. You don't see, you know, sort of the continued steps. And so your empathy when you're watching those kind of rescue footages does not extend to making sure those people are okay, to making sure those people have a way to come back to the kind of life that you have. It sort of ends when the video ends. I think a lot of things are designed to make us feel that way. And that sort of broader question to have an emotional response, but not to take action is maybe the purpose of the propaganda version of it. There's nothing for you to do. You just sort of, you, this is being taken care of by someone else. This is being handled. You don't have to worry about it. You can just keep living your life and you don't have to call your senator or call your, you know, city councilman or whatever and do something about it. In a local ways, like news stories about homelessness do not extend past like the localized event they're covering, right? It doesn't go into housing equity or something like it certainly doesn't go into the causes of the you know, the homelessness that you're shown. And I think that's sort of, a, again, a, a place where my own complicity feels fairly obvious to me. And I can, you know, think it's worth continuing to think about where our feeling stops and where our responsibility stops. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like how you put it a moment ago. It's content that's doing something for us, not for them or not for the broader situation. And um, to me, I mean, Empathy Hour felt like an exaggerated version of one of those like inspiring tales of personal heroism we might see go viral on social media on like BuzzFeed or now this news. You touch on that with the behind the scenes production of Empathy Hour as well. The producer has this rule that the show only shows effects of disasters and never the causes, right? Because if the causes were shown, it would complicate the narrative and the, the feeling that the content is meant to elicit. 
Yeah. My wife works in, in public health. And one of the things we talk about a lot is that you're often asked to treat the symptoms of something, but you can't treat the cause of it. Because the public health department isn't invited to like city planning meetings for how like roads should be or how, how many roads you should have or whether you should have, you know, so you are, you're passing out inhalers to, I'm exaggerating again, but you're passing out like inhalers to school children, but you're not taking cars off the road, right? There's sort of like the, the smog in the city is the, the cause the, of people's respiratory problems. And we treat the symptom, not the cause. We can never even really talk about the cause. And there's so many things like that, right? Like we talk uh, in Phoenix all the time about making like shade shelters for heat, which we do actually, of course, need. But the heat island effect is because we have a sprawling city made of single family homes surrounded by concrete, right? Like the reason we need to do some of this stuff is because we've made a uh, urban situation that is worse. But you can't discourage the building of more suburban homes, but you can build shade shelters, right? Yeah, and I think on the most macro level, that is a huge problem with the framing of our climate discourse and how are we going to solve this big global issue. As you say, it's all treating the symptoms, not the root causes. And, you know, and I get why that's both easier and also politically expedient, but it or it sounds easier, you know, than changing our entire economy or something. But um, yeah, and again, that's maybe some of the imagining we're getting to do here or imagining if people have done that or what they could do. Just maybe 20 years ago, I read a Toni Morrison quote that I'm now going to bobble where she talked about like, uh, how can I get you to pay attention without excess? You know, like you make the thing big in fiction so that it's visible. You make the thing louder or, or less subtle so that it's easier to sort of see something like empathy hour is a version of that you make an extreme version of a thing that we experience daily there's been all these news stories about like taking your kids to like the water park or doing all these things you can do to stay cool and it's again that sort of here's how to survive a heat wave in a way that's fun instead of like dealing with the fact that they're having these heat waves because of climate change you notice that that's the frame of the story once you're sort of you know awake to it right and i feel like that's part of all of this sort of learning to read through the media you're being given like i don't think those news stories are meant as propaganda, right? In the same way, but they they do have a function of keeping you from talking about the other thing. Yeah. So I want to ask you about the use of deep fakes here. Empathy Hour relies heavily on deep fakes. These are these digitally manipulated videos that are basically indistinguishable from real footage. And this, of course, is technology that exists in our world today and has been growing increasingly sophisticated in recent years thanks to advances in machine learning that allow software to trawl through all of this digital data and simulate facial expressions and ways that people talk with striking realism. When did you first encounter deepfakes and what was your initial reaction to them? It's an interesting technology and it's alarming. Even watching in like the new like Star Wars movies, like dead actors play new parts. You're sort of like, wow, you will just like never be released from your work, like in this weird way. Right? <laughs> sort of, um, maybe a computer program will be writing Matt Bell stories in the future, you know, and we, they can talk about it on a podcast with you and we won't have to be there. That's a, it's, it's a weird thing. It's, it's hard to think about. It does obviously seem really ripe for sort of manipulation. Of course, there already are manipulated videos that, you know, being distributed politically and different things on Facebook and such. I it's harder for me, honestly, to come up with like even like beneficial uses of the technology. You know, it seems like almost like only downside. I didn't understand maybe the technology as well when I was writing the story, but it's I've been playing recently with one of the like AI art bots and doing this kind of deep learning art thing. And it is 
uncanny how you know you can say like make this picture in the style of this person you come back with something that's like a reasonable facsimile of it and yeah i think that being able to distinguish sort of fact from fiction is going to be incredibly difficult in the future as it's already incredibly difficult yeah i think it's really telling within your story that francis who's this character who works on these deep fake videos producing these empathy hour episodes Francis himself is not necessarily aware that there are other videos out there from the same production studio that are also fake. Like he gets into this whole conversation with his friend Eli about, oh, we don't send our electronic waste to be recycled in some subterranean facility. I've seen the recycling facilities. And Eli's like, you really think that none of this content is meant for you? And it's like his first time thinking about, oh, my gosh, am I a victim of the same visual propaganda I've been creating. I mean, I think you see that in our, let's say in like a right-wing news sort of media, you know, like from what I, my perspective, I suppose, the politicians and people producing like say Fox News or something are also consumers of their own propaganda and end up with seemingly insane beliefs. You think you wouldn't be affected by telling lies about something that you would still remember what the core reality is, but that does not seem to be the case. That there's like a tunneling down into the thing and you don't kind of see your way out of it really cleanly. And of course, being awake to one thing does not mean you are suddenly aware of everything, right? It always feels like a sort of coming out of like layers or seeing it in different contexts, being able to understand the sort of story behind the story in one area of life does not necessarily make the other visible in any way. One other detail of Empathy Hour that really stuck out to me was the use of animals, specifically pets, uh, to evoke emotion within the episodes. In the episode Francis is working on at the outset of the story, there's this quote-unquote distractingly handsome dog that gets rescued from a rooftop of a flooded house alongside its family. And after the episode airs, Francis actually gets uh, reprimanded by his coworker for making the dog look too good because nobody watched the people. And I was curious whether there was a specific type of media or, or thing that you watched that sort of inspired you to write pets as an integral part of Empathy Hour, because I do feel like this is a very popular subgenre of disaster coverage today, right, is the pet rescue story. And I also feel like it's kind of problematic and plays into this dehumanization of disasters. Yeah, I think that seems, both those things seem right. Um, some of it's just coming, I think, from, you know, teaching creative writing and, and different things where students are incredibly sensitive to, like, animals being hurt in stories. Like, terrible, terrible things can happen in a story. And if something happens to an animal, they're, like, furious, you know. There's a, a Brian Evanson story I've taught a lot called Two Brothers that is, like, a very grim kind of phantasmagorial, like, horror story. And it's in four parts. And the third part is called The Dog. And the story is very violent, and they're just unwilling to read the part about the dog. I have students who just skip it. And they're like, oh, I really like the story. I just didn't want to hear about the dog part. And maybe it is just that we feel responsible for animals in a way we do not necessarily accept responsibility for fellow humans all the time. People outside of our sort of in-group do not get the same kind of empathy or the same kind of uh, actions from us, but maybe all animals do. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. There does seem to be something, as you say, specific to animals and, and the emotional response they evoke. When you were talking about those those games with those trigger warnings, I was thinking back to John Wick. I don't know if you've seen the John Wick series of movies, but I mean, it's this whole like revenge tale that literally starts with this guy's dog being killed. And it's just it's such a emotionally poignant and useful 
narrative device for getting this guy to go on this crazy revenge quest. And it, it, when you think about it, like objectively, it shouldn't be. It's, you know, it, it's not like his, uh, his, his child or his wife or anything. It's his dog, but it's a cute little puppy. And we see them bonding at the beginning of the film. And, and then it's just like, everything that happens from there on out is totally cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I wonder if there's a, if this is something about the way we tell ourselves that other people have like chosen their lives, like there's some, you know, certainly the like moral attachment you put to like wealth or to success sort of in, in uh, certainly in our culture, like an animal doesn't seem, we don't think of an animal as choosing its life, right? An animal has been put in danger some way. We see people who are let's say suffering financially or in, in sort of unsafe conditions. And I think there's part of us that tells us those people chose that. Like I, I made my life this way and they made their life that way. And even though I think we know that's not exactly true, we, of course, are told to think that and also often do. And there's probably something along those lines that like people, I mean, even in, to go back to the John Wick movies, it's a weird moral space to uh, adjudicate this on. Um, the dog is like an innocent and like the hundreds of other people who die work for like Russian mobsters, right? Like those people have chosen to be the lackeys of Russian mobsters. And so you don't have to feel bad for them when they get brutally murdered right yeah but i mean we see that also with portrayals of climate disasters in the news there's often this sense of victim blaming why don't they leave why didn't they evacuate um you know not necessarily talking about how people with more wealth and more privilege often have the means to evacuate whereas people who don't own a car or don't don't have a a family member within driving distance really have no other options yeah i don't i mean i don't know how i would get out of my city without like a car ever, right? Much less in like a disaster or if all the gas was taken or enough to the stores weren't open or something like, you know, like I'm pretty well off in that range and I could easily be stuck here, you know, much less people who are, if you're reliant on public transit, it's not running because there's a hurricane or something, right? Like, what do you do? You know, I mean, obviously those people are stuck in a different way. Yeah. So just to kind of sum things up, I mean, Empathy Hour reads to me as a clear criticism of many aspects of modern society, from extreme wealth inequality to the dangers of allowing powerful corporations to control our information ecosystem, and then, of course, our collective lack of empathy, as we've been discussing, for people less fortunate than us or people who uh, have very different circumstances. Do you see this as a likely extrapolation from our future? Is this something that you think could happen? And what do you hope listeners are going to take away from this story? Let's hope it's not likely. You know, to go back to the idea of like making something extreme, we already live in a version of society, right? Where like some of us are not already suffering the effects of climate change as much as other people are. And we so we do already live in a version of this. I think one of the things I find sort of morally intolerable about my own life and that is not easily solvable is the way that my choices and my wants and my, even if I try to make my life, you know, as small as possible a certain way, it still affects other people negatively somewhere else. And I think that's already the case that I get to live 
in a, in a pretty safe, pretty comfortable way that is dependent on other people not doing that. And so in some ways, the, it's less an extrapolation and more, uh, uh, an extreme version of a, of a present. You know, and I, and I think thinking about that empathetic reaction that we have is worthwhile. I think the thing that really made the story go for me was when I realized the empathy hour would only be 15 minutes long. That there was like this, like, <laughs> that was somehow like, that was the thing. It's like, oh, this story will work. That's the, that's the trick. Um, and then maybe the propaganda in the other place as well. But thinking about when we want to feel empathy and who we want to feel empathy for and what we want that to do in our lives and sort of understanding that, uh, when my own does not extend into action or does not extend into sort of advocacy for other people is something that I would like to be better at recognizing in myself. Matt Bell is the author of Empathy Hour. He's also an English professor at Arizona State University and the author of the New York Times notable book, Appleseed. That's all for this episode of Future Tense Fiction, a monthly podcast featuring short stories from Future Tense and Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination about how technology and science will change our lives. Tiara Darnell is our lead producer, editor, and sound designer. Production and editorial assistance from Mia Armstrong-Lopez, Tori Bosch, and Micah Espinosa. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of Slate Audio. Empathy Hour was written by Matt Bell, read by Josh Bloomberg, and edited by Joey Eshrick. The other editors on the Future Tense Fiction team are Andres Martinez, Ed Finn, and Tori Bosch. I'm your host, Maddie Stone. We'll see you in the future. <laughs>